Let's see, I've been asked to announce there will be refreshments uh, after uh, the um, worship service. Uh, be back where we had the breakfast. Uh, would be leftovers. You have to stay until it's all gone, okay? Uh, many thanks to all that cooked and uh, brought food. Um, Margaret Brownlee gets a pass because she got up at 3.30 to cook cinnamon rolls. The rest of you have to stay asleep, okay? I mean, stay awake. You can't go to sleep. No. Um, anybody else goes to sleep, I have a hymnal to throw at you. So, um, Hey, uh, in a more serious tone about... Um, uh, Monty prayed about the fires. Last I heard, David Hopkins, who preached here a while back and uh, was the assistant at Evergreen uh, Beaverton so long, was in Superior, Colorado, where the fires uh, burned so many homes down, visiting his, uh, their daughter, David and Carolyn. And um, they were trying to get a flight out. They were in a hotel. They had, had to evacuate. And I don't know what's happened. Uh, Don, do you know anything about that? You don't? So, um, yeah, it, it gets close to home. Pardon? Yeah, and they were sick. The Hopkins were sick, too. So, anyway, Happy New Year, right? Okay, so uh, this is what I kind of call New Year's Sunday. Um, and on New Year's Sundays, I try to uh, challenge. I did this back in Alabama. I'm going to do this here today. Uh, try to challenge people to... Uh, I know I'm not much to look at, but I want you to be able to see me, uh, and I want to be able to see you. So um, I try to challenge the congregation with something about the upcoming year or some kind of paradigm shift uh, to reorient the congregation, and I want to do that, a little bit of a reset, maybe a paradigm shift. And, and to bring this into focus, I want to tell you about a missions conference that we had at uh, Faith Church Birmingham. Years ago, we used to have a missions conference every year where we'd bring in local ministries, global ministries, bring in people we supported, and for a weekend, we'd have, this, uh, have a guest minister in, and it's always dangerous to bring a guest minister in your church because you just don't know what the guy's going to say, right? And uh, it's, it's, uh, sometimes you're blessed and sometimes you're disappointed. And so we had this minister in uh, named John Sartell, who was at the Independent Church uh, Presbyterian Church in, in Memphis, kind of a misnomer, an independent Presbyterian church, but anyway. And he began by saying this, listen carefully, until you realize that the first person that gets to this building early on Sunday morning and unlocks the doors and adjusts the heating or cooling, until you realize that that person is as much a missionary as anyone anywhere you don't understand mission. And I'm sitting, you know, in a chair kind of like that, and I'm shaking my head thinking, John, that is the craziest thing I have ever heard anyone say. That we're as much missionaries as anybody else. Because in that time, my paradigm was local churches send missionaries. And if you ask, who is it that sent well, it's missionaries. It's people that go to Africa or Asia or South America or something. Well, today I don't think that's crazy at all, and I'm going to explain why from this text, because I think Jesus would support exactly what John was telling us that morning. Let's pray together. Father, 
Help us to understand you and your ways with your people. You have revealed yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you reveal your will in your words and in the actions we saw in Jesus. And I pray that you use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. So we want to look at John 20, verses 19 to 23. John 20, verses 19 to 23. And uh, let me tell you, this is a post-resurrection incident. Uh, It's the evening that Jesus was raised from the dead, that first Easter Sunday. Um, They're important words because they're out of the mouth of Jesus. They're important words because they're post-resurrection. And we take it up at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me... Even so, I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but this is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. I want you to think first about assumptions and expectations, assumptions and expectations. So think about a college football coach, assumptions and expectations. When we hired you, we thought you would win the national championship every year, and you haven't done it. Therefore, we'll be looking for a new coach. Or think about a spouse, assumptions and expectations. When we married, I thought you would be the one to take the garbage out. Not me. They say that the number one cause of marital disharmony is unmet expectations. Maybe so. It's important to be on the same page in regard to assumptions and expectations. Indeed, joy and happiness depend on alignment of assumptions and expectations. Think about these. What is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is faith in Jesus Christ? Is faith in Jesus Christ having certain knowledge and assent to the truth of that knowledge? Or does it it mean I've got to also trust? And if it means trust, what does that look like? What does it mean to be a church member? What are the privileges associated with church membership? What are the responsibilities associated with church membership? What are your assumptions about those things? What are your assumptions about what God wants you to be and to do? And most importantly, are our assumptions in these areas in sync with those of God as revealed in the Bible? Because to be right or wrong on some of these things could mean the difference between heaven and hell. Many wonder, what does God expect of me? And what can I expect of God? And there's a lot in the Bible about that. And a part of it I want us to look at today. And I have two points. Boy, I'm glad only two points today after the the uh, meal and, and the children's program, which was a blessing. 
Uh, the first point is a sad reality, the fear of the disciples in verse 19. Now, the sign of their fear is pretty obvious. They are behind locked doors in verse 19. And if you look, some of you, as I read, were, maybe had your Bible open, and you looked at the passage immediately following this, and it's the story of, of Thomas, the one we call Doubting Thomas. And there are many parallels between this little passage I read and the more well-known passage about Doubting Thomas, because in Doubting Thomas, in verse 26, it's eight days later, the disciples are inside, Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked, you see. So these are miraculous appearances of Jesus behind locked doors, and the doors are locked because they're afraid. Now, why are they afraid? Well, they're afraid, first of all, because of the hostility of the Jews toward them. The Jews had been hostile toward Jesus. The Jews had been hostile toward them before. And why are the Jews hostile toward them? Well, they're hostile toward them because they, the Jews are afraid of them. The Jews are afraid of Jesus and His movement. They're afraid that, that the Romans would come and displace them with Jesus and His followers. Listen to this verse in John 11. I think it tells us a lot about what was going on at that time. Uh, they said, these Jewish people that oppressed and persecuted Jesus, even crucified Jesus, if we let Him, that is Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in Him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, if we let Jesus go on, we'll be displaced. We won't have a job. It's a turf war. That's exactly what it is. It's a turf war. And that turf war is the outworking of the enmity between the, the children of God and the children of the devil from Genesis 15. The disciples are afraid because the Jews are afraid and the Jews are persecuting them because they're afraid. But the disciples are afraid for other reasons too, or a more detailed reason. Jesus has just died and departed. He's no longer with them. You know, we get afraid when, when, when power figures in our life are gone. Children, when, when mother or father or both are away, sometimes get very, very uh, afraid. And, and they're afraid because Jesus has departed, and they're wondering... Will my fate be like his fate? Will I be crucified like he was crucified? That's not an unreasonable fear. If the tradition is correct, most of the disciples were martyred and some were crucified. So how does Jesus deal with this fear? Well, y'all are going to think that I'm a Johnny One Note when I tell you again, because I've, I've talked about this so much, uh, but he pronounced peace upon them twice in the passage. Did you notice that? He says in verse 19, Jesus came, stood among them, these Jews that are, these uh, disciples that are afraid. He says, peace be with you at the end of verse 19. And then in verse 20 again, peace be with you. Now this peace, as I've said before, is a, a standard Jewish greeting but it's more than a greeting here. It's more than a promise here. It's a pronouncement. It's a pronouncement. It had been promised. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. 
That's in John 14. In John 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And now he pronounces that peace upon them as a present reality. The shalom of God has come upon you. Uh, Reconciliation with God is at the basis of it. It's the unqualified blessing of God's people, body and soul, in the presence of God forever and ever. As I've said before, the five Ps, the presence of God with the people of God, in the place of God, with the protection of God, and the provision of God. In abundance, all of those things. It's what you find in heaven. It's what you find promised about the promised land. It's based on these words of Jesus, it is finished. The work I came to do is finished, and so I've guaranteed these things. It's a present reality for you. Not fully, not finally, not completely, but a present reality nevertheless. And he proclaimed it as we proclaim it now in the gospel. One of the ways you could talk about the gospel is just this. It's proclaiming the peace of God for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Acts 10, verse 36, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's peace to the Gentiles and peace to the Jews. And so it's this authoritative announcement of a present reality for all who are in Christ. And it's by faith that we obtain it. When I say at the end of the service, go now in the peace of God, this is what I'm talking about. This is exactly what I'm talking about. How did Jesus deal with their fear? Well, he pronounced the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel. The good news is just this. There is now peace with God because of what I have done for you in my life and death and now my resurrection. So the first way he dealt with their fear is he pronounced peace upon them. The second way he dealt with their fear is he revealed himself to them as their Savior. As their Savior. Look at the text. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, you'll remember in just a few verses, Doubting Thomas is going to say what? If I don't see his hand, his, the nails in his hands, the nail prints in his hands, and put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. And don't, don't fault Thomas too much for that. The other guys had already seen it, okay? They've told him, Thomas, we saw the, we saw the marks. I won't believe it unless I see it. And God very mercifully went and told him that. So... He's revealing himself, obviously, as the the risen Lord, but he's the risen Lord with the signs of his crucifixion. The risen Lord is the crucified Christ. So what does this do for them? Well, why be afraid, guys? Why be afraid? Why fear the Jews or anyone else if death is not the ultimate problem? Death is not the ultimate problem for a believer, right? Because that's been dealt with. I asked myself later in life, and I should have asked the question, but I finally got around to asking it anyway, how in the world did the Apostle Paul live his life with such reckless abandon for Jesus Christ? Well, I think it's pretty obvious if you dig into a few passages that he did it because... The death question had been answered for him. He said, 
Look, to be absent from the body is to be at home from the Lord. I don't know what to do. If, 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 if I depart, I'll be with Christ. It's, and that'd be better for me. But if I stay here, I, this is to the Philippians, I, I, can, I can minister to you guys. But he had settled the question and gave him the ability to live with reckless abandon. I don't mean reckless in a bad sense, but, but, but reckless abandon for Jesus. He wasn't afraid of dying. Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 6, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Hebrews 13, 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Luke 12, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. So he pronounced peace upon them and then he revealed himself to them as the crucified Savior and he's saying, guys, death is is not a problem for you. Why be afraid? If they kill you, okay, you'll live. You'll live with me. It's good news. And then... And probably one of the great understatements in all the Bible, at the end of verse 20 it says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Isn't that an understatement? Uh, The word, the Greek word can be translated rejoiced, and I don't know why the translators didn't use that word, really. But it's a fulfillment of great prophecy. Listen to this in John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. He had said they would be sorrowful. He said they would have joy, and here they are having joy. I hope that when you think about Jesus' resurrection retrospectively, it causes you joy, friend. When you think about Him and that He's been raised and He's alive, and when you look prospectively at your own life and death, You'll see by faith to your coming resurrection because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And it will too give you joy. Christ followers sometimes feel fear. They did. We do. We will. When we're opposed by the world, when we think He is not present with us. But you see, biblical peace is a present reality for those who trust in Jesus. Biblical peace is a future hope for all who trust in Jesus. This sad reality, they're afraid, and Jesus handles their fear uh, with the gospel and himself. Secondly, there's an unexpected sending here. The sent one sends his people. Now back in John 17, at verse 18... Jesus said something that is certainly at least prelude to this passage. In, in John 17, at verse 18, he says, As you see, he's praying to his Father, so that you hears the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them, the disciples, those you've given me, I've sent them into the world. Now, Jesus is saying a couple of things here. The first one is that he was sent. 
He was sent. If you don't have any uh, uh, reservations about writing in your Bibles, I want to challenge you to read the Gospel of John and circle the word sent every time it's written. Uh, if you don't miss any, if you've got a good translation, I don't know about these the paraphrases, but if you've got a good translation, 41 times you'll find Jesus saying that he was sent. John 10, him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. Three times in John 6, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, five times in John 7, five times in John 8, and many other times you will find Jesus saying, he was sent into the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, he sent his son. And, and the word sent is there. The concept is there even more. And so it is a core aspect of the consciousness of Jesus Christ. If you say to Jesus, who are you? He might say, well, I'm God in the flesh. He might say, but one of the things he would say, one of the core aspects of his consciousness is... I'm sent here. I'm sent by the Father. I'm sent. And I want to suggest to you today, and this may be a reset for some of you, it may be a total paradigm shift for others, that it should be a core aspect of how we think of ourselves as individuals and as a church that we are sent. That's what Jesus is saying. As the Father sent me, even so... I am sending you. So if we're sent, if he's sent, if we're sent, there's authority there. Jesus over and over said, I speak the Father's words, I do the Father's works. I don't say anything, I don't hear the Father telling me, I don't do anything, I don't hear the Father showing me to do. And he came to save. He came to bring this peace. He came to atone for sins. He came to uh, reveal God. And so we are sent. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. As the, Jesus was sent, we are sent. We are sent by the Son who was sent. Now when someone sends you, it, your response will depend on several things. So my mother used to send me to the store. Uh, go get a loaf of bread. Go get some milk. Go, you know, go get whatever. You fill in the blank. Well, in my house, that meant, yes, ma'am. <laughs> you just, you didn't say, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, you just, you, you obey. That's the way it worked in our house. Or my dad said, I'll give you $5 and help you pack your bag anytime you want to go, son. <laughs> but uh, you just obey. That's, what, that's the way things were in our house. And, and this is God sending. This is God sending. And he sends us to the world. He sends us out into the world. As what? As agents for the kingdom of God. As agents for the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors for Christ. We're the agents of the kingdom. We're to speak His words and do His works. So you might say to me, what is my mission? What has He sent me to do? Let me help you with that. First of all, Think of yourself as a kingdom agent. Think of yourself as a kingdom agent. As, as one who exists to advocate for and seek to advance the kingdom of God. 
Then consider your spiritual gifts. Everybody has spiritual gifts. Even if you don't think you have spiritual gifts, you do. The scriptures say you do if you're a Christian. Examine the needs around you. Search the scriptures and find out your responsibilities. There's a difference in giftedness and responsibilities. Everybody has a responsibility to do evangelism, but not everybody has the gift of evangelism. I don't think I have the gift of evangelism, but I I have the responsibility to be an evangelist to those around me. And then, so after I realize that I'm a sent kingdom agent, look at my gifts, look at needs, look at responsibilities, in all of that mix, then I discern my calling, and then I get busy. So we're sent on a mission by the resurrected Christ. Who is sent? The church is sent. Who is sent? I am sent. And then he resources the church with the Holy Spirit. Verse 22. When he he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's an imperative. It's a prelude to Pentecost. And it gives them power for mission. Power for mission, right? If I said to you, Do you want the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you want the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? I think almost every Christian I've ever met would say, yes, I would like the Holy Spirit in my life. I would like the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. If I said to you then another question, why do you want the Holy Spirit in your life? What do you mean, why do I want the Holy Spirit in my life? Well, why do you want the Holy Spirit in your life? And it gets a little dicey then. Well, if I had the Holy Spirit in my life, my life would be better. What do you mean by better? Well, it would be more comfortable. It would be more perfect. Uh, It would be God coming to help me with my agendas. Really? Is that why God gives the Holy Spirit? To make my life more comfortable? To make my life more easy? To make my life more perfect? Maybe God gives the Holy Spirit to help us in mission, to challenge our socks off, so when we move out into places where we're uncomfortable, the Holy Spirit shows up to help us in those places. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. I won't show all the prophecies in John's Gospel and other places where Jesus prophesied the Holy Spirit would come. But the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. Every believer has the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And the Holy Spirit, listen carefully, is, is, is not just a power. The Holy Spirit is a person for indwelling, for encouragement, for relationship, for power and effectiveness in ministry. I think one of the reasons we don't have any, any more sense of personal relationship with God is we have a diminished view of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's personhood, and we forget His indwelling. I'm not saying that all communions have that, but Presbyterian and Reformed types have that pretty badly. Uh, We we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as a a power. Uh, Some people would even uh, uh, probably not admit this, of course, but but subconsciously be the kind of the Darth Vader kind of force kind of thing out there, but that the Holy Spirit's a person, and the Holy Spirit indwells me, And the Holy Spirit indwells me so that I can be a sent kingdom agent. Think about Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Uh, They were asking Jesus if he was at that time going to renew the kingdom for Israel. Uh, And 
He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's pretty clear why they were going to receive the Holy Spirit. It's so they could be people of mission. They could be missional. They could be kingdom agents. And that's why the Holy Spirit has been given. It's not the only reason the Holy Spirit's been given, I don't think, but I think it's a preeminent reason that the Holy Spirit has been given. What is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you some definitions of the church. And then I want to give you one you've never thought of. <laughs> and I don't think I'm a heretic in saying this, okay? Here's the first one. The church is the body of Christ. That comes straight out of the Bible. Uh, we can't argue with that. I don't want to argue with that. The church is the body of Christ. You find that in many places in the Scripture. Another place in the Scriptures is you find the church called the house and family of God. Great. Good definition. I like that. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, we say the church is all who profess faith in Jesus Christ along with their children. I, 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 I like that too. And not only do I not have a problem with that, I positively I like that. Those are all good, true, helpful. But I want to leave you with this one this morning. The church is a redeemed, worshiping community of Jesus Christ sent on a mission. The church is a redeemed, worshiping community of Jesus Christ sent on a mission. It's to shape our image of who we are and to inform all aspects of what we do. Let me see if I can seek to bring this home. Another way to say that is to say that mission or being missional, if you like some of the jargon, um, should be in the DNA of every true church. So we were doing some strategic faith planning in Alabama one time, and we came up on prayer. And we we're doing, trying to do an organizational chart, re rethink the organizational chart, and we came, up with, we came to the question of prayer. Where do we put prayer in the organizational chart? And we had a real problem, because every time somebody said, well, we should put prayer under the mission team, and, and, and then somebody said, well, no, that's not right because we, we pray in our small groups and, and, and we pray in our worship service and, and we pray at the start of our session meeting and our diaconate meeting and our women's ministries meeting and our men's ministries meeting and, well, you know, prayer just pervades everything we do if we do it right. Yeah. Friend, mission is like that. Mission is like that. And we deceive ourselves in our organizational charts. Okay, you got to put it somewhere. I know that. But what I want to warn you about is, so you got a worship ministry team and you've got something about fellowship or community and somewhere along the line you'll put mission. But when the Apostle Paul wrote about worship in 1 Corinthians 14, he said you should expect unbelievers to be there and worship in such a way that they fall down and give glory to God by professing faith in Jesus Christ. You don't plan a worship service without some view to mission and, and lost people being there and being converted. Think of it that way. It's, it's, it's a, it should be a part of the DNA, should inform everything that we do. 
Where does God send us? If we are redeemed, worshiping community of Jesus Christ, submit, sent on a mission, where does he send us? Most of us, he's going to send to what I call the ordinary places. Okay? Uh, where we live, where we work, where we play, where we study, where we shop, where we drink coffee, where we wor- worship. So let's think about that for a minute. Um, I meant to bring a church directory and call out a few addresses, and I forgot to do it, so that's all right. So let's say you live, let me get my orientation here, parking lots over there. So you live three blocks that way. Why do you live there? Well, because I bought the house or I rent the house. Yeah, but how did you get there? Well, if you trace it down far enough, you're going to say, well, I'm there because God led me there. It's not by chance I live there, right? We're Presbyterians for crying out loud, right? God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. I'm not there by chance. I I made choices, but choice and, and the sovereignty of God work together. That's another sermon for another day. Where do you work? Are you there by chance? Or did God sovereignly guide you there? Where do you shop? Where do you sip coffee? Where do you do this? We believe that God has us where we are because of His sovereign will. And in those places, you are to be a kingdom agent. You say, I'd rather run hide. Well, I didn't say you were a good kingdom agent there. I just said you were a kingdom agent. I'm trying to challenge you to be a good one, okay? I'm trying to up the ante a little bit. But you're where you are. I'll tell you a story about a lady named Emma Renfro. She lived in a true story. She lived in a in a in, in a I guess we'd call it a nursing home back in those days. This was in the 1970s. And Emma had arthritis really bad, and she because she was so inactive and she was old, she'd gotten heavy, and so it, it kind of worked against her. But Emma had purpose. And I'd go to Emma, I'd, I'd speak there once a month, and I'd see Emma, Emma, how you doing? I'm great, preacher, I'm great. What are you doing? I'm trying to help these people. I'm trying to help these people. What do you, what do you mean you're trying to help these people? Well, I want them to come to know Jesus. I want them to be able to get down there and hear you speak from the scriptures. Here's a person that died to self, and even though she could have she could have given me a list this, wrong, this long of her problems. She saw herself in that nursing home as a kingdom agent. And she's one of the happiest people in that place. I could tell you, I could talk about that for 30 minutes, but you don't want me to. She was a missionary where she lived and where she had the opportunity. Most of us will be sent to ordinary places. Um, and life will look pretty ordinary, but we need to think of ourselves as kingdom agents where we are. Some will be sent to what we think of as extraordinary places. Uh, A few months back, I had a friend here who'd been in the Czech Republic, and he gave a report from this pulpit, uh, Johnny and Annette Johnson, and they moved to Zlín in the um, eastern part of the Czech Republic. And and I've been to Belize uh, in Central America on, on missions, and and I've been to Latvia on various missions, and, and I've supported people in Taiwan and in Asia. We can't say exactly where. We just use Asia as a catch-all. 
Um, and in Birmingham, we, started, we helped start a thing called Restoration Academy, a, a Christian school in a tough part of town where the schools were, were failing. But when you think about it, the ordinary and the extraordinary begin to coalesce. What do I mean by that? Well, if I took you, if I said, okay, let's go to Zlin in the Czech Republic um, and uh, meet with the Zlin Reformed Church, and I could in, introduce you to its pastor, Rene Droppel, and some of the other people there, and on Sunday I could take you to worship, and they worship in the Seventh-day Adventist building like you do, uh, and, and, um, and you'd get there and you would say, now this is mission. This is away from home, so it's mission. And if you said, what are these people trying to do? Well, they're trying to have a Sunday school. They're trying to have a nursery. They're trying to educate their children for Jesus. They're trying to reach out to the community. And what you would find, I could take you to, the, to Belize in, 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 uh, in, in Central America. I could take you to, to Pachacan or Cristo Rey, some villages I've been to. Uh, and, 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 and you said, well, what are they trying to do here? And if you looked at what they're trying to do and you looked at what you're trying to do, you would find the difference is one thing, geography. They're trying to do it there, but you're trying to do it here, and it's exactly the same thing. They're trying to plant and build and grow the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because the extraordinary and the ordinary coalesce when you think deeply about it. So my friend, the Johnsons, moved to Zlin. And so they had to buy a car and get a place to live and some other things. Well, in Alabama, they lived 20 miles from the church uh, out in the middle of nowhere. But when they moved to Zlin, they got a, an apartment right in the middle of the city. In Alabama, they drove a Toyota but in Zlin, they bought a Skoda, which is the national kind of car. VW owns it now, but it was the, it's the, the Czech motor works historically. Why did they do that? Why did they live in the middle of the town? And why did they buy a Skoda? Because it would enhance their mission. They did it for missional considerations. Why should it be different for you and me? When we buy a house, buy clothes, buy a car, choose what we do with our life, why should we not be as missional as they were missional? What's the difference other than geography? They were sent to Zlin by the one who was sent. You are sent to Newburgh, most of you, some of you may live a little out of town, by the one who's sent. So this consciousness of being sent people is to transform our identity and our character and our conduct and evoke sacrifice from us to achieve those things. At least in part, the Bible pictures the church as a redeemed community of Jesus Christ sent on a mission. I began by talking about assumptions and expectations. How does that fit with your assumptions about the church? How does that fit with your assumptions and expectations about this congregation and about your own life? If joy in marriage depends on alignment of expectations, and it does, I think, in any covenant relationship, 
then joy, our joy and the glory of God depend on proper alignment of our expectations and God's. So I want to ask you to pray about this and think about this. And if you need to make changes, do it. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you that Jesus is alive from the dead, that he was sent by you, his Father, and that he has sent us. And I pray, Lord, that we will see ourselves as sent wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we play, wherever we eat, wherever we shop, that we'll see ourselves as sent every much as you, O Lord, were sent. And I pray it will have a transformative aspect, uh, uh, effect rather, on the life of this church and a transformative impact on this community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.